Hi, thanks for joining us for Indestructible. I'm Mary Swan, Artistic Director of Proteus and Director of Indestructible, the show. My guests for this edition are Mary Rose, Saul Jaffe and Paul Huntley-Thomas. All three have had successful careers as actors and they've joined me today to ask the question, is an actor's life really for me? We'll chat about their career paths, the ups and downs, the realities of being an actor that so few people outside the profession really understand. So to properly introduce my three guests, Paul Huntley-Thomas is playing Robin, amongst other parts, in the show Indestructible. And he's toured nationally, internationally. He's done several film and TV appearances. And most recently, you can see him in Secret Invasion for Marvel. And he made a one-man show with me called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know, which he also co-wrote. And we based that on the life of Lord Byron. Saul Jaffe is an actor, writer and storyteller. He's working with me on Indestructible, not as an actor, but as dramaturg. He's performed on some of the largest and smallest stages across the UK, including the National, the Globe and Birmingham Rep, and across Europe. And we've worked on several shows together, and probably most notably on Merrick the Elephant Man, which ended up at the Britsoft Broadway Festival in New York. Mary Rose is playing Catherine Shaw in Indestructible, and we've worked together on and off for a long, long time. She made, probably most notably, the one-woman show with me, 12, 10, 15. She's also worked with Pilot Theatre. She did a three-month run on Broadway in New York, but also worked for theatres like the New Wolsey in Ipswich, Chichester, Salisbury Playhouse. So that's our cohort for the conversation today. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Nice to see everyone. So... What I wanted to talk to you guys about was being an actor, the realities of being an actor. We've all worked together for a long time, full disclosure. We've all worked together on and off, and you've all worked with each other in different forms. (laughs) And we, you know, we've all been in the industry for quite some time. So, Saul, what's been your career path? How did you get to this point? So I went to university, and that time, it was a very physical theatre course. So... Everything was about the actor, which I absolutely love. So first couple of years were about what your ideas were and you were just given space to perform and make your own work. And then the third year was more community-focused. So by that point, we kind of spent so much time working in ensemble together, working with, with other people. And a lot of people coming out of that process went into their own theatre companies. They set up their own stuff, made their own work. So I think the disadvantage of it was we just weren't prepared for the business world, the business of acting. We didn't have the contacts of uh, a CV to say, oh, I've played this, I've played that, I've done this play. But we had a great ability to work together with people. So that stood me in good stead for those companies who, who look for those sort of actors. Once I'd kind of got in, I had a foot in the door, I just started being recommended to other people. So... That developed. And again, disadvantage from that point of view is that I, I never really tried to look for commercial things and go into the business of having an agent to represent me and somebody else looking out. So that's a pitfall of that side of things, not knowing the, the business side of things as well as somebody might come out of drama school. But it was just having time on stage, really, learning my craft, being on stage as much as possible, making mistakes, and then just saying yes to things. So when people said, do you want to do verse? Do you want to do Shakespeare? Do you want to try this? Do you want to try that? Had a notion of just saying yes to stuff and, and seeing where it took me. And doing that first show, not just doing a show here, but then going to the former Yugoslavia, working in those communities, that's a really, I mean, for anyone, that's a really unusual project. But for your first show... That... Yeah, I mean, that was, it, it, yeah, 
I loved it. Let me just say that, first of all. So I have to admit to being a little bit snobby. Um, you know, I, I was a physical theatre actor. That's what I wanted to do. I worked very much in ensemble. And there was this group called the Best Tellers who everybody said, oh, you must go and see them, you must go and see them. And, and uh, they're, they're brilliant. And I just thought, my background as a, as a Jewish performer, coming from the Jewish community, there's a sense that sometimes there can be some stuff like, oh, normal communities, a little bit twee, can be somebody playing a guitar, singing Hebrew songs, which, you know, I'm a little bit averse to over, over time. I haven't been brought up like that. I thought it was going to be a little bit childish. And their play was fantastic, right? So it just kept being extended and extended. I thought, oh, I can't not go and see this. I was absolutely blown away. I was absolutely blown away by their physicality, by the fact that they used movement, words and music. They said, one of those things does the storytelling at any point, not all three. So if you've got music telling the story, the physicality has to do something else. The words have to do something else. And I watched them, I sat gobsmacked, and they're the only company that I've really written to and said, I would like to work for you, please. Our paths didn't cross for many years, but when it did, then uh, we got together and I sort of understood their language in terms of physicality. And then they had a show that they just needed somebody else to take one of the parts for, and that was me. That's great. And you've done, over your career, as you say, the largest and the smallest stages because you did huge ensemble work at the National mm. and then we've done village hall tours <laughs> to very small. I, I still have trouble about poor ladies in, in Aldershot. I think there's a there's a, <laughs> a bakery called the, the Three Buns or something or we did some street theatre there and I added two buns to their view when I was doing a quick change in the street um, so I don't think they were overly impressed by that but we have we have some of my favorites are still if you remember Midsummer Night's Dream which yeah. uh, was beautifully interrupted by some dinner ladies <laughs> coming settling in just as you get to the denouement of the play they just just setting up for lunch love just setting up for lunch and rattle 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 so just that's the reality of bringing shows to people and, and that was my background again from Exeter which you take theatre out right you take it to the people you don't expect people to come to you so you make it relevant to them to their community you make it engaging and you have to think about what the audience wants from this so you have to adapt stuff but yeah so we've done <laughs> taking my clothes off in public uh, kids stuff teaching and then going to big stages as well. You know, the National was amazing, but again, it's a very different demand. Yeah, yeah. And the, and and I suppose that variety is, is great because that's, for you, Paul, that's been quite a big thing for you. Because, I mean, you know, just do, doing a Marvel series and you've done a Bollywood movie and then yeah. you've done tiny stages and big stages as yeah. well. And what was, yeah. what was your, for you, what's been the most interesting experiences? I think it's those ones where you don't, you don't really know what to expect because I've done stuff at like uh, the uh, Royal Albert Hall. I did uh, an opera there and I applied for it because I thought, I've never done opera before. I'm not a singer and they wanted actors for that. And I thought, wow, that, well, that sounds fun and interesting. So I went along an audition, got the parts, one of the soldiers. And then you realise how different a world it is to the world that we're used to. You know, when you're suddenly you're rehearsing at Three Mill Studio and they've got the London Philharmonic in every day and you my God, this is incredible. And then when you've got a full house, two and a half thousand people, the Royal Albert Hall clapping and cheering, and you think, this is incredible. But again, that doesn't serve my career, but it's the experience. I love that experience. I love doing those odd jobs that you'd never normally possibly get to do, but also tying them in together. I love doing the village halls. Some of my 
best memories, I think, was doing the village halls and the impact that you make on communities. When communities say to you, this is the only thing now that we have as a community because the post office has gone, the pub has gone, so this is all we do. So you felt like, you know, you're really changing people's lives and you felt like, to a lot of children as well, this might be the first time where they experience theatre. So those always felt so precious. It was more about being in the community for those few hours than it was about the show, really. So, yeah, I, I love those. Yeah. I love those shows. We did a show together, didn't we, called Missing in Action? Yes. And that was one of the most visceral moments in a village hall. It was about PTSD and people who were serving in the military and returning service personnel. And we did a lot of research and at its heart was a homeless individual. We tell his story backwards and you realise mm. finally at the end that he's actually the main character in the play. And Paul would sit outside of wherever we were playing, whether it was a village hall or a theatre we did at Mercury in Colchester or a tiny village hall. And again, it's one of the things we've always done is take shows from village halls into main theatres as well. And he'd sit outside in costume as this homeless character and just see what people's response was. And the show started with him walking through the audience, which was just... Because then everyone had to reevaluate how they'd looked at or reacted to this person. Yeah. But in that village hall in Salisbury, there were quite a few ex-service personnel, weren't there, who, yes. who got up at the end of the show and started talking to you guys about their experiences. Yeah, about their experiences, yeah. And you could see people on the front row, you know, older guys holding their partner's hand really tightly. And I, I think I remember somebody saying to us, if he has to leave, it's no comment on the play. It's just, it might be too raw and real for him. But I was thinking today about this whole thing and thinking about sort of characters I've enjoyed playing and characters I missed when, when I let Spider go. I missed him. He was one of those characters I really enjoyed playing. Yeah, something about him, I don't know what it was. Perhaps it's that reaction with the audience. Or perhaps it's also being cast against type. I'm not that sort of down and out type. Look, you know, I've got a friend who's got long hair and a beard and he's always getting cast as those things, or wizards, or something <laughs> like that, you know. But yeah, so it's playing those things where you think I'm really making a difference here. You know, this is a really important piece and it's got a lot to say. And so, yeah, you miss those sort of parts, I think. Beautifully written by Brendan Murray as well. The Indestructible podcast was produced for Proteus Theatre by the brilliant team at Creative Kin. Getting the right people behind your podcast is so important and Creative Kin were a great choice to make our show. If you're an ambitious brand keen to expand your reach, go to creativekin.co.uk forward slash launch to find out how you can reach a new audience. And Mary, you're, I mean, it's interesting, Paul, talking about being cast against type because it is a perennial issue for female actors. But Paul, myself and you, we all did drama degrees. Was your drama, drama mm. degrees? Well, yeah, so we're all degree graduates as mm. opposed to drama school graduates. But then you went to the poor school. Yeah. Which I don't think exists anymore, sadly. No, no. It was a really special school because it was set up to support People who wanted to train who couldn't afford to go to drama school, who might not get grants. The training was around the evenings and the weekends. So you would work all day, down tools, go to King's Cross where the school was. And it wasn't very salubrious at the time. And we would work there four nights a week and one day at the weekend. And I look back now, I did that for two years and I think, wow, actually the stamina I had to have and the discipline and actually that really has helped me with my acting career. Yeah, and of course you did 
three months on Broadway, didn't you? Proper Broadway. Yeah, I did. I did three months on Broadway. So I was in a production of The Seagull for the Royal Court, which transferred to Broadway. Really interesting thing about it, though, I've been thinking as we're having this conversation, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. In the end, the repetitiveness is the same wherever you are. So there would be times when I would be backstage on Broadway in this amazing theatre, the Walter Kerr, and I'd think, oh, I've got to do the show again. I've got to get myself geared up. There's a whole audience out there and I'd be in my beautiful costume. There'd be dresses. The budget was amazing. You couldn't have anything better. And yet I sat there and thought, I still need to really get myself going and get myself in the mood to do this production. Yeah, and it's the same process, isn't it? If you're sat in a, a toilet, in a toilet <laughs> as it is, in a, and also people always think, I think people always think these places are really glamorous and everything. And they're really not, are they? The amount of theatres, particularly West End theatres, and I think, I don't know what the theatre was like where you were on Broadway, but it was one thing I loved about the film Birdman, is like this dreadful dressing room that the character has in that. People just think it's so glam and lovely, and like, it's really not. I think what makes it really special, and we've all experienced this, is the chemistry with the audience, the alchemy, and that's why I think we're all driven to it like a drug. You don't know which night it's going to happen. You don't know what situation you're going to be in. Are you going to be in a village hall? Are you going to be in a school hall? Are you going to be in a West End theatre? There is um, some magic moments where you and the audience are in communion. It's it's quite yeah. a... yeah. You hear it said that the muse has visited you. I'm sure we've all experienced that, a moment where there's just something, I don't know, an extra thing, yeah. I don't know. I've seen it happen. I've been in performances where you see it happen. There's a, a Spanish phrase, the duende, where the duende enters you, particularly for flamenco um, dancers and singers. And I've seen a dancer who just sort of got taken over and you just go, this is extraordinary. She is now dancing with something else that, mm. that, is, that has come into her and just taken it over and you're just absolutely enthralled. And seeing people just reaching another level and feel the audience changing as a result of that, you know, something you kind of live for as an actor, kind of go, please, could I just do it once? <laughs> maybe tonight, maybe tonight. <laughs> We've all done one-person shows together interestingly. Yeah. And I, I just wonder what the difference of doing something as a solo performer and then in an ensemble, how that plays cast, out for the you. The cast party afterwards is really dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I find the company is terrible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No conversation. No, no, exactly. <laughs> no banter. I, it's extraordinarily different. I remember being in America. So we were in New York in the, the 59th, 59th Theatre. We had a wonderful sort of start. And the team were there, you know. We were kind of like, wow, we, we're in America. We're doing this, right? And then you left. <laughs> and I was left for a sort of week on my own. And it was an entirely different experience. And the venues are, are welcoming and stuff. But you go, oh, my God, I live and die on my own now. And everything that happens is down to me. Now, the production manager, who was also calling the show, turned out to be fantastic. She was just amazing. And we had a great rapport. And she started to learn about 
Because with the one-man shows, one-person shows, you're not always giving the same cues every night. You're reading the audience and it's slightly improvised. And you need somebody who can respond on, on lighting and sound. Do I go now? Do I give a little bit more time? And she and I very quickly found that rhythm. And I was like, wow, that skill. She's done that within a couple of performances. And so that was really enjoyable because you realise that you're working with somebody else. And of course, the audience is at somebody else as well. But... um I've always had this thing, like, five minutes beforehand, I don't want to go on. Yeah, Just yes. It says start at 7.30, start at 7.30. Yeah. Of course it doesn't. 7.35, I'm hating everyone. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I don't want to do this. I don't have to be here, you know. I've got other things to do. Like, what? Oh, my but God, this it's is so five true. minutes of absolute fear. It's mm. so true. When I resurrected my ill-advised acting career and did a one-woman one show just so that I could share the pain and <laughs> and I was exactly the same. I was like, I don't need to do this. What the hell's wrong with me? I don't know who wants this. <laughs> Before I went out and did it. And it is, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And every time you get so many shows under your belt and you still feel like... Mm. I, I actually had to come up with a sort of strategy to deal with those couple of minutes because I really look forward to performing and I really look forward to going out there. And with Merrick the Elephant Man, talk about one of those roles that you really love. I was really proud of our work. I, I really was. I just looked forward to doing it and telling his story more than anything. So a couple of friends said, oh, I'm doing this one-man show. And they went, never do a one-man show. <laughs> and, and they're really great actors, right? You think, oh, my God, what have I done? I, I hadn't thought of it like that. But it did look forward to doing it every night and just being able to have a rapport with the audience and see what I could do with them and play with them. But genuinely, that five minutes where you just go, I really hate everyone now and you need to sit down and be quiet. And mentally and psychologically, I had to kind of just latch onto something that let me vent. And one guy, and going back to your, your point, Mary Rose, was that performance, that repetition, how are you going to make it different? And so I worked with the director, Greg Thompson, and he was like, to stop yourself waking up on stage, what do you do? And he said, give yourself one motivation every show, what is it that you want to do now? Clarity, pace, humour, pathos. What is it you, you want out of that show and go into that show just with that one motivator? And that's pulled me through on a wet Wednesday in real. <laughs> I've had that as well, Saul. I worked with Ian Rickson as a director and he used to give people a little note and it was a motivation for that performance. It was a point of focus and it really kept it fresh. And also saw your point about your relationship with the production team. We were out on tour with 12, 10, 15, which was the one woman show I did. I had that same thing, that fear and actually almost being talked down from the ledge. I can't do this. Absolute terror. And the stage manager being like this amazing friend, not only did she have to run everything on the technical side, but she had to help give me confidence, calm me down and... That was really special and important. Those offstage roles are so important. It's such a team. It was Sarah Brown, wasn't Sarah it? Sarah Brown. Yeah, Sarah Brown. That's really interesting as well, isn't it, around the, the role of someone like a stage manager, company manager. They come under different guises depending on how you're structuring your tour or how it's working. But they have to really wear all those hats because the director, I'm not at every show. And so that worry, crisis, or whatever, you really need someone who can cut. And it's surprising how that skill isn't talked about more in terms of the people skills that stage managers and company managers need to really help someone, because it is it's incredibly stressful. It makes a huge difference. I don't know about your experiences around the table, but um, when I've worked with people who haven't been great at it, you suddenly yes. realise the people who are great at it. Yeah. We've done this in the corporate world as well, when you have these massive events. 
you look at your lighting designers, your sound designers, everybody who's on the production desk. And again, it's that being able to read and understand what's going to happen next. And also when things go horribly wrong, <laughs> which they often do, how they deal with that and how they make you look good and how you make them look good. Thinking about it now, I mean, I realise how many of the production managers and stage managers we work with who are brilliant like that. They're absolutely part of the team. They're not on stage with you and they, God knows they don't want to be. <laughs> it's like, you chose to be out there, you go and do that, I'm going to sit in the dark. But they're brilliant, you know, they are. So we've talked a bit about things that have been really great and things we've really enjoyed, but it's always quite fun to share the things that are really awful about being on stage and what we do and the horror stories. I don't know if anyone's got anything you'd be willing to share that you're not going to get sued for, <laughs> for talking about. I got knocked out on stage once. Oh, my God. You know, not completely cold, but we were doing production of The Tempest and I got hit on the back of the head with one of the logs because it's a log-carrying scene. And supposedly... Well, I don't remember the next 15 minutes, but supposedly I was wandering around the stage going, I'm a prince, I love you. <laughs> really? <laughs> really, yeah. And then I sort of, for about 15 minutes, everybody else realised that there was something wrong. My mate Jim, who's playing Caliban, was in this basket. Them, wait, Paul, it took them 15 minutes to realise something was wrong? Did well, you yeah, you know, you know, I'm not a brilliant performer. <laughs> I tend to improvise a lot, especially with Shakespeare. <laughs> And yeah, so so he sort of thought, well, that's a bit weird. Paul's gone a bit off book, you know. Um, and he popped out of his out of his basket. Then the producer lady, she pulled me to one side. Now I eventually sort of came round to myself, sitting on the edge of the stage, and going, "It's fine, it's fine. And nobody's noticed. Nobody's noticed." And I went, "Paul, you've been out for fifteen minutes. We called an ambulance. They're on their way there, you know." Wow. So paramedics came along and took me into hospital in full costume, nice flowery shirt and, <laughs> and you know, knee-length oh boots. And that always helps. That always helps, exactly. This man thinks he's in the Victoria area. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and checked me out and I was fine. You remind me of, um, we did a, a passion play, Battersea Arts Centre, and it was a promenade. And Elliot Levy, a wonderful actor, and I think he's just won some sort of award for cabaret and, and being brilliant in that. He was playing Jesus. And we all got cast during the, the process. Nobody had been cast beforehand, so the director was, like, looking at this. And um, Elliot just, he had the right hair. Um, he, he came forward. We hadn't practised the bit where he ascends to heaven. So we would have to stand, as these apostles stand around him, get the harness on, right, round his legs, and while he's talking to the audience, hitch him up to these cables that would suddenly he'd rise out from this crowd. And it, we'd never had a chance to <laughs> rehearse that all the way through properly. Got to the point, it was, yeah, your harness is on, and Elliot ascends, and we'd never seen this, and it was beautiful. There's a beautiful background of clay which started to dissolve and it looked like mud and earth and blood and it was like really moving and we were all like on the verge of tears, like Christ ascending. And then Elliot just goes dead. What we hadn't realised was <laughs> the harness had cut into his femoral artery <gasps> and he absolutely passed out. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> on the top of the broomstick holding him up. He's passing. We go, that is the best acting I've seen this evening. <laughs> and, we came, and he came down and we were like trying to undo the harness and he's totally floppy. We were all like holding him up like, Elliot, 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 Elliot. And he eventually kind of came to him and was like, what, 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 what did I miss? And we're like, it's okay, you're being resurrected. Three days are over, you can come out now. Um, Lincoln, heck. Okay, I've got, I've got a couple if we've got time. One, 
that happened to me and then one that's I really admire another actor. So with me, I was doing Beauty and the Beast. Oh, God. With you, with Proteus. <laughs> and the lovely actor playing the Beast had a really long wig and it kept getting snagged on the set. And we were in this one production. He comes onto stage. I'm sitting there. He's about to start the scene. Comes onto stage almost at a run. And his head suddenly jerks back and his wig has got caught in the side of the set. And he's trying to free himself and say this scene. And then he frees his hair and then he comes and leans over me. And I've got this little tiara on. And his wig gets caught in my tiara <laughs> and he's trying to free himself from me. And in the end, in a very not quite the right scene, he pulls the tiara off my head, rips his hair out of it, chucks it back in my lap <laughs> and leaves the stage. And then I had to hold it together. So... <laughs> That, that that was hard. I do remember that. And I remember Simon, who was the stage manager, and myself just being of no help at all because we were just <laughs> crying. <laughs> and you, you really you. are all alone in those moments. <laughs> and the, other, the, the one I really admire, we always talk about Dr. Theatre when we're really ill and you just have to keep going because, you know, everyone's relying on you, the rest of your company and the audience who have actually bought tickets. And a really amazing actor was doing um, Back to the Broadway show. We had two shows on the same day. There was a matinee between the shows. Some of us decided to go and have sushi. He went and had sushi, came back for the evening show. He had quite a large part and he went on stage and he came off and he went, I don't feel very well. And he, like, ran like the wind up to the bathroom and basically just kept throwing up. We had oh. buckets backstage, threw up, went back on stage, did his scene, came off, threw up, and he did the show. And I'm like, how on earth? He had the, uh, I don't know, it's just... Yeah. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about not related to acting skills because the thing that people often don't get is that success looks like someone who is working most of the time as an actor, but often is working and using those skills in other areas as well. There are very few people who are full-time actors. I did a show about Hattie Jakes and we talked about it being the character's job job. You know, there's your job and then there's your job job and the job job is the thing that earns you money. And whether that's things like voiceovers or whether it's things like you do to Saul in terms of the corporate storytelling. I know Danny Charles, who's the other cast member of Indestructible, who we'll talk to in another episode, he does a lot of training for the police and the NHS because they need to work with actors to do that. So, Mary, what would be your skills that you have that aren't to do with acting that have really helped? The thing I wish I'd known when I started out in my career was that you need to think about yourself as a business you need to know how to market yourself, how to write an invoice, how to put yourself forward for a job, how to network, how to make those connections. So you do all this training all about your practice and how to be really authentic on stage. But then how do you market yourself as a, I hate to say it, as a product? I, for so long, felt it was up to somebody else it was in someone else's hands whether I was going to get a job or not and it always felt like a really unequal power and I think as I've got on that idea of being a business and being able to create your own work as much as you find your tribe and working with other people who share your values is really great and exciting yeah just not feeling like it's all in someone else's hands 
Yeah, yeah. And Paul, for you, what's been... What skills do you think have been really useful to have? Driving's always a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Especially true. working with a touring company, yeah. uh, being able to drive. The other sort of job job stuff that I do is uh, medical role play, which has been fantastic. It's been a learning process for me as well because it's been a fascinating insight into a world that I know nothing about, mental health care and this sort of thing. And with that as well, I feel like I'm helping, you know, trainee doctors to become better doctors. But I think in a way we're both getting something out of it. I think of these as characterizations. You think somewhere down the line, I might be asked to play a character who suffers from this, and then I've sort of gone through these scenarios that they've sent me, and I play those. So I find that fascinating. But especially what Mary Rose was saying about, this is one of the things I found at, at university was, had great fun, three years of messing around, writing stuff, but then came out and didn't know how to get work. Mm-hmm. How do I go about approaching people I used to just write off to all the theatre companies and just do that and send in a CV and say, have you got anything? And one day it landed on somebody's door and the other person had just cancelled and said, I can't do that show anymore. And the next day I said, she opens mine. I mean, nowadays it's so much more digital-based. Then it was you send out your timber six and your your CV and all that sort of thing. And there was whole things about do you put your CV on yellow paper so people see it a bit more (laughs) so it sticks out of the crowd and this sort of thing. yeah. But we were never taught how to find the work. We were taught how to make the work, which is fine, but never how to find other people to make the work with or to get the permission to make the work, that sort of thing. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think that idea of actually being tenacious about it, you have to make it happen. And I did exactly the same thing. You know, I opened up the Yellow Pages and contacted the first art centre under the letter A, which was Ashcroft Art Centre, and the lovely Steve Rowley gave me my first work as a youth theatre director. Mm. And I think sometimes as well there isn't that emphasis on actually you can have a showcase at the end of your training period. You might even come out with an agent, but actually most actors I know who have agents are still getting probably 40% of the work they do themselves by people they know or asking around or doing that sort of stuff. So just to finish off with, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but I'm just interested if you were talking to 21-year-old Mary Rose, who's just starting out on her career, what would you be saying to her? I think I would say you will work if you just keep going. If you're diligent and committed, you will work. So when people say, oh, it's too hard, you'll get a lot of that. You just keep going, believe in yourself, believe in your craft, you will get work. Think about yourself as a business and I definitely find your tribe, network, be part of a community of creatives that you can make work with, that share, that look out for each other. I think that's really, that's what I would say. Paul, what would you say to your Um, young Paul Huntley Thomas? (laughs) I think I'd say be more confident in yourself. Be more confident in your abilities. And also perhaps alter how you view success because actors are told to think of success as getting a BAFTA or an Oscar or that sort of thing. Just being here 30 years later down the line and still working at it, that is a success, you know. And you could tell your younger self that you'll be part of the Marvel Universe and play a Bollywood baddie. Yeah, all those good things. And it will still be fun. You'll still enjoy doing it. It will never feel like a day of work. 
the work is is learning the lines, just stuff I'm doing at the moment, learning the lines and and the songs and dances and that sort of thing. That's the hard work. Being on stage is play. Mm-hmm. And Saul, I totally agree with both of them. Uh, you know, somebody I think as well that that I work with said it's about longevity. An actor's success is still being there at the end of the day, still working. I've always wanted my work to speak for me and not to shout about who I am and and who I am as an actor and I'm so great. And I've seen a lot of people who who do that and they get a lot of work. There's a part of me would say, you need to be a little bit more arrogant. You need to be able to talk clearly about yourself and say, these are my strengths. This is what I do really well. This is what I'm learning to do. This is what I hope to do. But this is what I can do now and this is what I want to be doing. And I think if you're clear about that self, you can be very practical about going, just believe in yourself that you're going to do things. And I love the stuff that I've done. I love the success we've had. They've been critical, if not financial. And that's the thing sometimes you just have to settle for. Oh, thanks. What about you, Mary Swan? Yes, Mary Swan. What would I say to young Mary Swan? Um, The sticking at it, I think, is don't worry so much about it if it doesn't happen in the way you envisage. Because I started out thinking I was going to be an actor and then became a director and then just dipped the toe back in every now and again. (laughs) ill-advised but I think it's I think it doesn't happen the way you think it is and actually the things that are going to be the most cherished projects or moments are the things that are not the obvious ones but yeah it's all that lovely stuff and working with you guys oh (laughs) having a whole lifetime of working with you guys is lovely so thank you ever so much it's been lovely to chat to you So thanks for joining us for Indestructible. If you like what you've heard, please share, subscribe and leave a five-star review. It really helps us reach other listeners. The next episode of Indestructible is available to listen right now wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this edition. I'm Mary Swan. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to your company next time. Indestructible.